It's awesome to have Ted Kirkpatrick of Tourniquet here with The Antidote. Thanks so much for coming, Ted. Oh, all right. No problem. Thanks for having me, Dave. I've been curious about the band name Tourniquet. Why did the band choose that? Uh, It was back in, man, 1989. (laughs) And I think it came down to two different possibilities. One was Testify, uh, which just wasn't too unique. And the other was Tourniquet. So we ended up on Tourniquet, and I think we made the better choice. Well, Ted, I ask every band to take us right back to the beginnings of the band. I mean, you saying 1989, that was a long time ago. That was, yes. How did Tourniquet come about? Um, I had uh, graduated from University of Texas in Austin with a uh, business communication degree and um, didn't really want to enter the executive world, as it were, without giving the music a try. You know, I've been drumming since I was 12 years old and said, you know, if I'm going to do this, it should be while I'm uh, young and single. So I moved out to L.A., didn't know a single person there and, um, you know, met up with a couple other guys there and we we formed uh, Tourniquet. And here you are now being not so young, but still doing the drumming. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I have to try to stay uh, young if possible, because uh, most of the drumming is uh, quite tiring. It's good for an excuse to keep in shape. I have no choice. (laughs) We've got to talk about those drumming skills. You must know that you're an exceptional drummer, but is building your skill up to that kind of caliber as easy as you really make it look? Uh, I would say absolutely not. You know, I, I tell people that it's easy to be mediocre at almost anything. I don't care what it is, you know, sports, music, uh, art, um, whatever. I'm not saying in any way this applies to me, but it, it definitely is extremely difficult to reach that upper echelon because it's very frustrating. And with drumming, you got four limbs. They're not meant to... Uh, work independently from each other. You know, your feet are kind of supposed to be coordinated with with your arms and uh, one hand is kind of coordinated with the other one. So when you get to the point of drumming where it requires disassociation, where your feet are playing one thing while even one foot's playing something, the other foot's playing something else, and your right hand is playing something different from your left hand, it's just not how we're wired. So that's the point where a lot of people with drumming just say, forget it. I'm good enough. Let me <laughs> stick to what I know. But uh, to start to do that kind of stuff, that that's when um, the frustration sets in. And then a lot of people just plateau at that point. You mentioned about starting to drum when you were 12 years old. Have you ever hit the point where you've said, you know what, I've had enough of drumming? Uh, no. I haven't. I, I think most musicians can relate to this. Um, you know, it, it, people like um, one of my friends is Frank Marino from Mahogany Rush. Oh, you yeah. know, one of the most um, incredible, just jaw dropping. He's just one of these guys that it just makes it look like he's not even trying. And, you know, and, and I know he's been asked and he just said, you know, when I got to a certain point, I really never practiced anymore. And I think that's true for a lot of people like at that level. I know, you know, I learned when I was growing up, I learned you know, every Rush song backwards and forwards and sideways and, um, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and uh, King Crimson and, you know, Pat Travers had drummed to all this different, you know, fusion stuff, Jean Lutani and on and on. 
so we call it woodshedding, you know, and I think to get to a certain point, you've got to woodshed for a long time. And I, and I put in my hours and my frustration. Then when you get to a certain point, I think the practicing drops off. So people say, oh, how often do you practice? I'm like, not too much. You know, if it, it, it has to be for a purpose, you know, like I'm practicing to try to make my drumming great for a specific tourniquet song or something. It's not just like sitting in there practicing. So um, that, I think it gets to that point. You also sit in a unique spot, Ted, because drummers are supposed to sit in the background of a band, but that's not the case with you in Tourniquet. Um, no, I, I think the the biggest compliment that I get that, that really is humbling to me and I appreciate so much is when um, people say, you know, if you take away all the, the music and you leave just the drums, I can still tell almost right away that that's Ted Kirkpatrick drumming. That's a big compliment to me um, to kind of have your own style where people have even said, oh, that's a Ted drum fill. So that really is, uh, I, I appreciate those comments so much. And, you know, I try to treat the drums like a, a musical instrument, which they really are. You know, they're not just a noisy timekeeper. I mean, it is a musical instrument. And um, I grew up also playing other instruments. So when I got to drums, I think I just saw it as another, um, you know, musical instrument. Something else that you also do is that you're the primary songwriter. Yes, right. Yep. And there's not too many drummers that actually fit into that slot. No, you're right. I, I'd say there's a few that are or were lyricists. Neil Peart's a perfect example. You know, he wrote quite a bit of the Rush lyrics. But I, I'm not really sure I know of anyone else, uh, maybe you do, that not only writes the lyrics, but writes pretty much all the music. And when I mean all of it, I mean every harmony, every vocal line, every vocal harmony, every counter melody, the guitar riffs. Um, so, yeah, that, that part is, I would say, extremely unusual. I, I, I'm not aware of another band where the drummer pretty much writes everything. You know, I guess it's impossible to cover the whole tourniquet discography in just 60 minutes. So I, I want to pull out some of the highlights. Okay. According to Last FM, the band's most played song is Melting the Golden Calf from your 2003 mm. album, Where Moth okay. and Rust Destroy. Wow, all right. What is it about that song that has attracted so many listeners? It's a, a groovy song. It's a very heavy groove to it. Um, it's kind of a mid-tempo song. And um, it's actually one of my favorite tourniquet songs. I'm kind of surprised to hear that, but that's really cool. And um, oh, it's got great guitar playing from uh, Marty Friedman plays on that one. And, um, you know, it, speaking of someone you can instantly recognize their, their playing. So, um, yeah, that's a, a cool song. And um, I think it applies lyrically to people, um, you know, whether you're a believer or not a believer, wherever you are, of um, making a quote unquote God out of something in your life and how, um, no matter where you're at or where you come from, you find out that uh, those things just don't ultimately fulfill to make a God out of um, whatever it is, you know, your career or another person or your looks or what money or whatever it is. Anyway, I think that a song lyrically uh, relates to a lot of people. And what about for you personally and for the band for Tourniquet? Have you ever had fans putting you on a pedestal and treating you as if you're a god? 
Uh, it's happened. Yes, it, it has happened. And um, sometimes you feel like you let the, the fans or a fan down. You know, I think um, any band, when they get to a point, they have some of these very, very much appreciated, but very hardcore fans. And, um, you know, they bought every T-shirt, every sticker, everything you come out with. And so, yeah, th- those are the special people. And, and I feel a, I don't know if it's a responsibility, but an appreciation for those people to, um, you know, try to make them happy. And, uh, but it, it can be a little daunting once in a while when you know you've let someone down. The music of Turnikin has been described as Beethoven meets Frankenstein. <laughs> I find that mm-hmm. just hilarious, but I understand it. <laughs> is classical music really your largest influence? Oh, it is. It is by far. Um, and so many people just trot this phrase out. They say, oh, I love all kinds of music. Uh, oh, really? Do you like the you know, Norwegian black death metal? No, I guess not. Oh, do you like opera? Do you like uh, Wagner operas? Uh, no. So they don't really mean that. They mean they like everything from Taylor Swift to Metallica. That's what they mean. <laughs> so, so when I say I love all kinds of music, you know, I mean it. I mean world music and, and stoner music and, um, you know, hypersonic, fast screech, death metal. And, um, but classical music, to me, it is in a different category. It's literally, to me, like, um, and, you know, as a part of my faith, I would say, God put these people less probably than a hundred on earth from, you know, 300 to, you know, Rachmaninoff died in 1943 and Shostakovich died in 1975, I believe. I mean, I would call them the last two of the incomprehensible, brilliant geniuses of classical music. And, um, like, I live in South Florida, and I see iguanas every day. They're incredible. You see them up close. You can't believe how beautiful they are. And they look like dinosaurs, you know, like a relic from the Pleistocene age or whatever. But classical music is, instead of looking out your window and seeing iguana, you look out your window and you see a 60-foot-long brontosaurus chewing on a palm tree. That's what classical music is. You know, you, you can't compare these people to anything people say well you know duke ellington was a composer and paul mccartney's a composer it's like please stop it stop so my passion is classical music you know the the music of beethoven and mozart and gustav mahler and chopin and you know i could go on and on so to answer your question uh yes absolutely that is my biggest passion and my biggest influence in songwriting is classical music. You showcased some of that on your solo album, In the Shadow of the Masters. Yes. And it brings in that classical influence because you were adding your drums to classics like Chopin Etude Opus 10, number four. So (laughs) you have to tell me, have any symphony orchestras asked you to join? Uh, They haven't, but I know there's people that have heard that album and been interested to hear it. You know, I, I was in, uh, lived in Milwaukee for a long time and had season tickets to the Milwaukee Symphony there. So I know um, the principal violinist, he's heard the music. You know, this is a guy that plays a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin, and um, his name's Frank Allman. So he, he's aware of it. And um, on a couple of our albums, we've had members of symphony orchestras on antiseptic bloodbaths. We had the 
uh, trumpet player from the symphony on it. And yeah, we've had, you know, classical musicians that are in on it. And also one of the songs on that album is uh, Augustine Barrios. It's his, uh, uh, it's called The Cathedral. And it's the allegro part on that. And the guy that played that is one of the, the greatest uh, guitar players in the world, Dennis Azabajic. And he's heard, not only heard it, but he said he loves it. Of course, I had to ask permission to use his rendition of it. And he heard it with the drums and just said, oh, my gosh, I absolutely love this. So he was pleased with it. And not every classical musician would react that way. Some would say, like, oh, my gosh, drums over Beethoven? Come on, dude. You can't do that. But I did it. And that's what's so awesome, because you've got two different worlds of music meeting together. Right. Yeah, that's that's how I see it. Yeah. There's a quote on Wikipedia about your songwriting, and it said, Kirkpatrick's talent for allegory, symbolism, and using unusual and sometimes bizarre examples to convey Christian concepts can be found throughout the tourniquet catalog. So what are your thoughts? Are they bizarre? Uh, I certainly hope so. I mean, people, (laughs) (laughs) I I hope they are, yes. Um, You know, fans tell us all the time, you know, this song is called Gelatinous Tubercles of Purulent Ossification. What's going on? And, uh, you know, there's other, I make up words, you know, one of the songs I've crawled to China is called Claustro Spelunker, about, uh, you know, getting stuck in a, in a cave and how do you get out and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope they're bizarre. And, and a lot of the examples come from uh, nature. You know, I, I think pretty much everybody knows my passion for, you know, animal welfare and nature and so on. So, so examples come from that. And then examples come from, I have a background in high-tech medical equipment sales. So I get influence from the medical world. And yeah, and it's it's not to try to, you know, impress people or confuse people, but it's it's like, you know, do we need to hear lyrics for the 8,000th time about from wrong to right and into the light and out of the night? It's like, please stop. So, you know, I try to do things and talk about things in a way that's never been done before. I, I try to. So hopefully that keeps it uh, interesting. But the reality is, is that simplistic lyrics is the type of music that sells nowadays. Yeah, that's true. Well, and always in every song, I always try to make sure that the message is clear and that it's not all just, uh, you know, confusing lyrics or allegorical uh, this or that, um, that there is a simple message. You know, that goes for the music, too. A lot of the um, simplest uh, melodies are, you know, done by people of extreme talent. I mean, you think of Beethoven. Who doesn't know, you know, the opening notes of Beethoven's fifth? You know, Mm -hmm. da-da-da-da. You know, or who doesn't know Mozart's uh, one of, from one of his symphonies? You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, everybody knows that. So, you know, simple is just as effective and just as important as complex and bizarre. So why not stick with the bizarre? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. There'll always be some of that, yes. And that goes for the music, too, of throwing in weird things in the middle of songs that, like, oh, my gosh, it, what 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 just happened to my ears for that three seconds? So, uh, you know, you'll find that all through the tourniquet catalog. You mentioned a moment ago about being an activist for animal welfare. 
And that comes out on some of the music of Tourniquet, like the killing of a circus elephant on the song 86 Bullets. Mm-hmm. Would you ever think that activism could take precedence over the Christian themes? Uh, not in any way, no. And I, and I think for literally 25 years, I've been trying to, uh, and, and I would say now, the number of people that quote-unquote get it is at an absolute all-time high. It's it's almost a, a watershed movement that people, after all these years, like, you know what, the way we treat animals and the, the daily choices we make with what we choose to, you know, to eat and what we choose to go to, you know, a circus or um, all those things, people have that it's uh, absolutely intertwined with God's original plan of how much he loved his creation. You know, the Garden of Eden, God's perfect plan. Nobody was killing animals and eating animals, and they weren't killing and eating each other. That's how God wanted it. You know, there was no death. There was no suffering or violence towards other living things. It was all together. So I think people really kind of understand that to a great degree now, the importance of that. I think when we first started, people would say, gosh, Ted, what are, you, what are you wasting your time with animals for? There's, as they said, you know, there's people, you know, that don't know the gospel that are going to hell and blah, blah. And, you know, as a Christian, I believe in the Bible. So, but th- there's a great deal in the Bible as well about God's care for uh, his creation, his beloved creation. So, um, yeah, so that's been a, a, as much a passion as the classical music for me, and I'm sure will never, ever go away. So I, I have an endless fascination with animals. And, you know, people say, oh, I love animals. Um, I don't just mean our pets and seeing everyone loves to see a Siberian tiger or whatever. But when I say all animals, I mean you know, the, the forgotten factory farm pig number 3784 that never had a name and lived a short, miserable life to end up on our plates. That, to me, is there's no difference between that and the animals that everybody loves, you know, the, the majestic, the whales and whatnot. Tourniquet should be considered prolific. You've got two live albums, an EP, and now with the release of your latest album, Gazing at Medusa, That brings the band up to 10 studio albums. You make it seem like creating music is easy, but is it? Boy, is that a great question. Um, I would say at times it's like pulling teeth. It's very difficult. And at other times, uh, you know, a few songs I've I've written in 15, 20 minutes that they just poured out and there they were. But I would say songwriting is definitely work. Um, and I, I always think of the riffs first, the guitar riffs pretty much always come first. And then I plan the drums around that. Yeah. I, I certainly don't feel like I'm out of, you know, we call it, are you out of ammo? You know, you got no other ideas to share. So I, I feel like I, I will never stop writing and releasing music. And as long as there's people that seem to enjoy it, I, I, I don't see any end in sight of music to, uh, to write. During high school, I had an English teacher who wrote a series of texts on mythology. So I'm really familiar with Medusa. Hmm, uh-huh. How about explaining the character for our listeners? Well, Medusa is a, a Greek uh, mythological uh, figure that uh, if you looked at her directly, you would instantly turn to stone. 
And, um, you know, there's a great Medusa in the movie Clash of the Titans. You know, there's two versions of that, an older one and a remake. And that's some good stuff right there. Uh, so what it relates to is, and the song talks about it, and it's sung so well by um, Dean Castronovo, who, you know, is uh, in Journey for years and in Ozzy's band. And, you know, a, a great, great drummer, but also a fantastic uh, singer. Mm-hmm. He's saying that song, the title track, along with Aaron, you know, and our band, the guitar player, does the, the nasty vocals and Dean does the singing stuff. But it, it talks about how the Bible, there's a verse the Bible says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it's just kind of about when God has the power and to um, make our lives powerful and we can stare right into the face of Medusa without turning to stone. What about for Ted Kirkpatrick? Have you ever encountered a personal Medusa? Ah, uh, I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's times in my life uh, I don't have any kind of uh, dramatic story. I've never been into drugs. Um, you know, there's been times when my faith has been tested, where you wonder what it, it, that God is not doing anything in your life for a long, you know, extended period of time. And then you feel humble when you read about people waiting 600 years in the Bible for something to happen, and you, you kind of get humbled a little bit. So um, I don't think any anything too dramatic, you know. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow I'll have something that'll knock me on my rear. <laughs> you never know. Another song from Gazing at Medusa is Memento Mori. It's a reminder that we're mortal, we're going to die one day, and we should consider where our soul will end up. So here's a rough question for you. Is aiming your music on your Christian faith a way to rack up points for the afterlife? Um, you mean, are you like more rewarded for pointing people that way? Exactly. Yeah. Uh well, I, boy, I've never even thought about it that way because it just uh, comes out because that's that's how I feel. That's where my faith is. So I certainly never, never once considered that it's somehow scoring points for me personally in any way. Um, yeah, it's just kind of sharing what's important to me. Yeah, it never once crossed my mind that, that that's what I was doing. I mean, I always feel like there's people out there that I know you know, that I feel it would benefit them to hear a song like Memento Mori or a song like, you know, 86 Bullets about helping animals. And, you know, I wrote a song called Twilight years ago. Uh, I, I remember my um, my grandma, her name was Myrtle. That's an old school name right there, Myrtle Hergert. <laughs> and I remember she, she lived about 50 minutes away from me. And I was a, I was a typical lazy high school kid. Maybe they're not like that now, but they sure were when I was growing up. And I, I looked at few, few times when I made that 50-minute drive to go visit her in a nursing home. And I know she was mostly staring at the walls there. And I remember after she passed away and I got a little older, I, I looked back on that and I can't believe how selfish I was that I did not go and visit her more. Um, I felt really bad about that, as I should. And so I wrote a song called Twilight, and it's a song about the neglect of the elderly in our society. 
you know, just as an encouragement. And man, the response to that got so many letters. They say, you know, that song literally made me cry. And I, that weekend I went and visited my, my grandfather, my, my grandma, you know, in the nursing home or, you know, whoever. Um, that, that song had a dramatic effect on me um, when I wrote it and thankfully on other people as well. The new album, Gazing at Medusa, is different from the other tourniquet releases. I don't know how to describe it. It's like the songs sonically snap at you, <laughs> but I, I'm uh, sure you've got uh, a better way to say it than I can. Yeah. To me, hands down, this album has our best production sonically of any album. Um, it, so that that's a a credit to um, the, the guy that mixed and mastered it is a guy in Atlanta. His name's Aaron Pace. And man, is he talented. Just the way he can separate the sounds where you hear absolutely everything and everything is like slamming in your face. Um, and then the mellow parts are very, very clear. So I'm absolutely thrilled with the production. To me, it's hands down the best drum sound we've ever had. I think it's also, uh, the guitar sound, too. A lot of people have commented they just can't believe the uh, the guitar sounds on it. That's a credit to carefully recording, you know, on our part, and then a huge credit to, as I said, Aaron Pace for his uh, brilliant work on it. The album also has an unusual song that's called Longing for Gondwana Land. And the lyrics say, Once there was a place united one race, now it's not the case. We separate ourselves from those who are different. I'm really wondering mm-hmm. with the song if you're trying to make a social or take a political stance with that. Um, no, you're right. Uh, political too, yeah. And social in that we let politics separate us. You know, that, that someone says, oh, you're a liberal, you're a conservative. And that right there creates a wall between people that, that to me is ridiculous um, obviously, we've been doing it for centuries uh, socially. You know, you look different. You know, you sound different. You're from a part of the world I don't understand. I don't appreciate. I don't. And so that's what that song is about. It's it's just a, a message for everyone to you know accept people not only accept but learn to appreciate the differences in people and where they come from and where they uh, where they're going and yeah, just a song about. You know, it's kind of a cliche these days, but a song about unity and can't we all get along. With Gazing at Medusa being your 10th album, so what about looking into your crystal ball and telling us what to expect for album number 20? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, 20's down the road a ways, right? Yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine a time in my life ever that I won't like super heavy music. So, you know, this is obviously a common complaint with fans of bands is that, oh, you know, they were so heavy in the early days and they just got more mellow and mellow as time went on and as the the dudes got older. And I I can't imagine a time. I mean, I kind of relate it to if I live to be 85, if I sit down and watch Beavis and Butthead, I guarantee you I'm still going to laugh if I'm 85 (laughs) years old. And, And the same is true with heavy music. I can't ever envision a time when I won't love the sound of a, 
you know, super distorted guitar or hypersonic speed or a ultra slow. And, you know, the thing is, classical music is, is full of extremes, too. You know, the ultra heavy, some of the Bach organ fugues and, um, you know, Mahler symphonies and things like that. And then you've got the really light stuff, you know, um, uh, Handel's Messiah, things like that, or Bach's Brandenburg concertos. So it, it's like that with music of today, too that I will always love extremes and I, I just can't envision a time when I, that will ever uh, be any different. Ted Kirkpatrick has been speaking with The Antidote. Ted, I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us. Oh, it's been great. Great questions. Um, makes me think, so I, I appreciate that.